Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So Dressed listeners, you've heard us mention it multiple times on the show by now, but April recently made her first trip to visit me in New Mexico so that we could attend the 100th Annual Southwestern Association of American Indian Arts, or SWIAS, Indian Market in Santa Fe. And, you know, a reminder, an estimated 100,000 people attend this event every year. It's the largest juried show of Native American art in the world, and it features the work of over 1,000 Indigenous artists, including many working within the medium of textiles, dress, and fashion. In April, we saw so many amazing sartorial displays on the streets, the runway, and the museums. I'm dying to know what was your first experience of the market like overall? Um, Well, I would say it was a little overwhelming because of my FOMO, (laughs) which was my fear of missing out because there was just so much to see. And and honestly, like, I wish we had more time there because I didn't even get to see everything that I wanted to see. So trip two, round two next year is perhaps in order, I think. Absolutely. But I mean, we saw everything from jewelry to garments and textiles. um, And this also included catching the final portion of the Native American clothing contest, which celebrates the incredible handmade regalia and clothing of various North American indigenous nations. And they had prizes for both men, women, and children in that contest. Yeah, and that was in the middle of Santa Fe Plaza. We kind of walked up and caught the tail end of it. And I mean, it was so amazing to see all of the different types of like artistry and, you know, the level of detail and the beadwork. And then the kids, the little adorable kids were just so, so cute. And, you know, this level of artistry and beauty is something that we saw on display, not just in this contest, but in the fashion exhibition, Art of Indigenous Fashion, which is curated by past dress guest Amber Dawn Bearrobe on view now at the Institute of American Indian Arts, or IAIA, um, and that uh, IAIA's Museum of Contemporary Native Arts in Santa Fe. The museum's first fashion exhibition, The Art of Indigenous Fashion, showcases the work of 26 contemporary Indigenous designers from Canada and the U.S., while also paying homage to the students and artists of the IAIA, which includes the co-founder, Lloyd Kiva New, who I have already promised to do a future episode on, so stay tuned for that, probably season six of Dressed. And as you may remember, Lloyd Kiva New also had a few pieces on display at the Met's now-closed Anthology of American Fashion Exhibition. So on our way into the exhibition, April, we actually ran into Vogue writer and past dress guest Christian Allaire, which was wonderful and unplanned. I was hoping to see him at one of the events over the weekend. Christian, of course, has since written many wonderful articles about the weekend's festivities, including one on this very exhibition. And he interviewed Amber Dawn, who told him in the interview that, quote, there is no one way to explain Indigenous fashion. The inspiration was to present a snapshot of Native North American fashion from an Indigenous perspective, showcasing designers that are often overlooked in mainstream media to present the diversity of narratives created by Native designers and show how every design has a story and meaning beyond visual beauty. 
Yes, which is, of course, why we thought it would be fun to share a few of our favorite pieces from the exhibition with our listeners. Cass, would you like to go first? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say in general, I thought this was a really well done exhibition. It had so many incredible, beautiful pieces on display. And that includes the striking figures that meet you before you enter the exhibition. There's three figures that are the first entities you encounter. They're kind of these powerful masked and armored beings by Coach de Pueblo artist Virgil Ortiz, who often works in the medium of both pottery and fashion design in these kind of large-scale installations. But in this case, he had these three figures that are entitled the Recon Watchmen. And the exhibition text tells us that Quote, Ortiz envisions a dystopian future 500 years after the Pueblo Revolt in which time writers return to the era of the revolt to aid their ancestors. And so actually, for our listeners who aren't familiar, the Pueblo Revolt is something that happened in 1680 in New Mexico. And it actually is the only successful indigenous uprising against European colonizers in North America. So it happened in what is now Santa Fe, which is an ancestral homeland of the Tiwa peoples. And so basically all these pueblos across New Mexico joined forces to expel the Spanish colonizers who'd been there for over a century. And so Ortiz's work really works within um, the realm of celebrating Pueblo culture, the 19 remaining pueblos in New Mexico, and he's been doing that for over two decades. So as the exhibition text tells us, recon watchmen are from the year 2180. They're watching over the past, present, and future of the Pueblo people in New Mexico. And in this particular scene, Ortiz tells us that the watchmen are led by their matriarch dressed all in white. So she's kind of the central figure. And they're there to conduct covert surveillance of Earth to detect any movements of the Castilian army encroaching on Pueblo lands. And eventually they drive the Spanish out and, quote, realize the challenges and persecution will continue and protecting their clay culture, language, and traditions from extinction is imperative. So really a powerful and really thought-provoking way to open this exhibition on the art of Indigenous fashion, and really a potent reminder of, you know, the myriad of complex and important themes that are quite literally sewn into many of these pieces. Yep, yep. One of the pieces I'd like to talk about is actually situated along the far back wall, and anyone who knows me personally knows that I have a little bit of an affinity for disco style of the late 70s and kind of (laughs) early 80s. So, of course, it was this look that drew me immediately all the way to the back of the room. Despite the fact that it dates to 2020, it definitely gives off a vibe of the late 70s and early 80s. It is an ensemble designed by Leslie Hampton, and it's a combination of a dress and a cape that is made from a rose ombre satin. But the textile also has these very thin black stripes that run vertically from top to bottom, and they're about every inch and a half or so wide. And the textile itself has actually been pleated at the exact spot of the black stripes. So it creates this a fascinating, almost sort of like op art visual illusion when it opens to reveal the rose ombre that's inside the pleats. And it does this quite a lot, especially on the bodice. The dress itself is a V-neck bodice. And at the navel, the pleats are kind of pulled to the center. And then there's two side cutouts that reveal the wearer's lower abdomen. And then that sort of gathering of the pleats together on the bodice continues down the center front of the skirt, which creates this sort of waterfall effect. And the dress is paired with a thigh-length cape of the exact same fabric. It has a very 
interesting detail at the shoulder um, where the pleating has been placed over the shoulder caps to create like a fan effect. It is very fun. It is very visually arresting. Just a little bit more about the dress. Uh, it was actually worn on the red carpet by CTV eTalk journalist Lainey Louis when she hosted the coverage of the 2020 Golden Globes, which apparently happened just before everything shut down for the pandemic. And as the exhibition label notes, quote, the dress hit many best dress lists with the public figure being aware of and strategic about her representation of an indigenous designer on the red carpet. Um, Leslie Hampton is a member of the Temagami First Nation of Northern Ontario, and her work emphasizes, quote, equality, diversity, and authentic representation of both beauty standards and culture within the fashion and media industries. And Cass, this is interesting. In addition to her own eponymously named fashion brand, Leslie Hampton also works as a curve model. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that was a really, really fun and beautiful piece. I mean, there were so many amazing pieces on view in this exhibition. So it's uh, we just wanted to highlight a few, but this is by no means all of them. When we entered the exhibit, I, I don't know if you noticed this, April, we kind of split ways. <laughs> and I <We> immediately <laughs> made a beeline for the beadwork of Jamie Akuma, who, just listeners, you've heard of us talk about multiple times on this show. Um, she's an award-winning, internationally celebrated bead artist and fashion designer. She has worked in museum collections around the world She's very famous for beating like Christian Louboutin boots and in this incredible, just exquisite, incredibly detailed style. It's amazing how much these beadwork artists can render realistic imagery, right? So she has, and I love Jamie too, because she does like pop culture references. So she has yeah. like interview with the van, the bride and interview with the vampire. Like she's um, beaded that woman's portrait on, I think, a clutch. She's also done... Jack Nicholson from The Shining. And then in this particular work is a like studded backpack with has like this beautiful floral motif. So that was definitely one of my favorite pieces. And then that was next to a case that had the work of Terry Greaves, who's another beadwork artist who works with sneakers a lot of the time. And so there were these beautiful beaded heeled converse. And when we say beaded, we're talking about like the entire surface of these converse are beaded. Um, so it's just extraordinary. And Terry is Kiowa. And like so many of her contemporaries learned beading at a very young age. She was just eight. You might remember from our interview Tuesday with Orlando Dukai, he was six when he learned how to bead. And she says that she uses sneakers as a medium for her art because it invites a wider audience to engage with the art of beadwork because it's just so compelling and stunning to see this really recognizable accessory done in this exquisite way. Um, and this specific pair of shoes is called the Great Lake Girls and depicts dancers in their jingle dress regalia. Oh, so fun. More on jingle dress history coming soon, I will say. Um, but the next piece in terms of the exhibition... I want to talk about, this piece makes me so happy, Cass. I think you know what I'm going to talk about here. Because <laughs> uh, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is here. We have actually talked about the performance of this work on a past Fashion History Now episode, but it has been a minute. What I want to talk about is the Kent Monkman, Jean-Paul Gaultier <laughs> collaboration. So just a quick backstory here because it has a little bit of a complex history. So in 2017, 
Canadian Crete artist Kent Monkman engaged in a performance art piece with the fashion designer and, of course, haute couturier Jean-Paul Gaultier. And the piece was entitled Another Feather in Her Bonnet. So essentially, the performance is Kent Monkman's alter ego, which he performs as Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, marrying, quote-unquote, marrying Jean-Paul Gaultier. And this was done in a sort of act of contrition slash absolution for Gautier's past indiscretions with cultural appropriation, um, which include looks inspired by Plains People war bonnets, which he sent down the runway, and also traditional garments worn by Hasidic Jewish peoples. So the marriage ceremony between Chief Miss Eagle Testicle um, and Gautier was a private performance where the two, quote, pledged to recognize each other's culture and celebrate their individual uniquenesses as strengths until death do them part. And then Monkman commented, through the alliance of marriage, we learn to understand or forgive the mistakes of our partners and build true understanding. So for this ceremony, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle wore Gautier's white feather headdress um, that he had designed in the past. And this was paired with a floor-length tulle skirt, also white, and also a completely see-through bra, kind of like a bra top made of golden rings, which supported these dangling white feathers. And then, of course, Miss Chief also had on elbow-length gloves, white. What else? Naturally. And this, (laughs) (laughs) this ensemble wasn't actually represented in in physical garments in the exhibition. But what was in the exhibition is this sort of 19th century-esque cabinet card style wedding photo. And it's in black and white. And I basically lost my mind when I saw it as Cass can attest to, because I knew the performance, of course. um, But to see that they actually posed for and produced like wedding photos yeah. <laughs> from the performance was pretty amazing. And I, just the whole performance in general, I thought it was a really good and productive way to address cultural appropriation and also cultural inspirations from both sides as a way that really engages with the viewer. And it, and it points out past mistakes that have been made, um, but also that like that growth can be made through dialogue and learning. And it was all done in a very smart and direct manner. And I really do love both the work of Monkman and Gautier. So it was a wonderful experience to see them coming together to address this in the exhibition. Yeah, that was definitely one of the, my highlights for sure. Um, and like you said, we've we've seen the performance or read about it for so long to actually see it um, kind of captured in this moment was really, really cool and really special. So also re- a really special part of the exhibition was this entire section that's dedicated to designers who studied at the Institute of American Indian Arts, which you've heard us mention multiple times now, IAIA, which is really this creative epicenter of Indigenous talent and has been for decades and decades. It's a really groundbreaking school. And the exhibition text for this section was written by Jessica Metcalf, who's the founder of Beyond Buckskin Boutique, who I've been trying to get on the show for a couple years now. But she writes about how IAIA really played a major role in the development of the current Native high fashion movement. And as we've mentioned, the IAIA was founded by Lloyd Kivanu, and that was in 1962. It had clothing courses from day one. Quote, the accomplishment of the early years at IAIA demonstrated the notion that new work was built upon an important legacy, but that growth and experimentation was critical. And Jessica writes about how the students and faculty really began to embody invention and innovation, a reinterpretation of traditional practices and imageries, 
quote, this revolution was born out of a frustration. Indian art was becoming cliche and it became clear that if native arts were going to survive, a new vision of indigenous art had to come into reality and it needed to come from native circles. And this all began at IAIA 60 years ago and the work of many of these groundbreaking designers are in display in this section and that includes the work of Kiva New, but also my dear friend Pilar Agoyo and Patricia Michaels, who April, I think you want to speak about one of her pieces. Yes, I sure do. Um, some of our listeners who are fans of Project Runway might already be familiar with Patricia Michaels' work. She was on season 11 of the show and one of the three finalists for that season. And we saw several pieces of her work over the course of that weekend cast. But one of the ones that really captured my attention was her very recent colonial dress of this year, so 2022. And again, it's a combination here of a dress and a wrap, just like my first pick. Apparently, I'm on this kick of like an ensemble wrap dress combo today. (laughs) Um, We have your number, April. (laughs) The dress itself is strapless in little bustier style, has a very fitted bodice, nipped waist, has a full skirt that um, terminates mid-calf at the hem. And because the chat label for this particular piece does such a nice job of describing it, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just going to quote the chat label. The colonial dress is signature to Patricia Michaels' design language with hand-painted textiles, draping, loom-beading, devore, which is a velvet fabric with a pattern formed by burning the pile away with acid, and hand sewing. An abstraction depiction of her Pueblo worldview is incorporated into the dress with the organic hues of the earth, water, and sky. Michael's painted Taos Pueblo's sacred mountain and aspen meadows on the dress and a southwestern sunset on the velvet shawl, which features long gold fringes. And Michaels explains, quote, the content of the garment is Taos Pueblo's sacred mountain, forest, lands, and rain cloud. And it also addresses how non-Native settlers came to Pueblo lands and exploited the land for oil, water, and minerals, end quote. And it is a stunning piece, I must say, and all of the handcraft really comes through in this textile or the textiles used for it. You know, as you know, Cass, that the textiles are these beautiful abstractions of earth and water. Yeah, and she's just so famous for making all of these hand-painted textiles. I just, as you know, spent my early days of maternity leave watching all of this Project Runway seasons. Um, It was so cool to see Patricia um, on that season. She, Heidi Klum was so in love with her and her work. And another one of her dresses is also on display um, next to that. One of the first dresses that you see actually walking into the exhibit, which was a surprise to me because I had no idea, was my friend Pilar Agoyo's dress called Bloodline. And I actually know Pilar from working in the film industry for many, many years. She's an badass cutter, draper, and fashion designer. She's from Okeowenge Pueblo. Um, she's also Coach D in Kiwa. And she's a dear friend of mine. So that was really a surprise. And she actually, I sent her a text and she sent me a little bit of um, information behind the dress. And she said that my inspiration for the piece came from the organza pa- fabric that Penny Rose gave me. And Penny Rose is actually a pretty famous costume designer. She's done like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, for instance. But um, they worked together on Lone Ranger. And she said she'd been wanting to make a garment of it since 2012. Um, And she'd been wanting to make a denim dress for a long time. 
And so she had an opportunity to make the garment for an anniversary of the IAIA Museum. And so she used that opportunity to create this dress. And so she actually is one of those groundbreaking designers that attended IAIA in the 1980s. She went there in 1987. She says she intended to be a painter, but she was also interested in fashion illustration. And she was given an advisor, and this woman's name was Wendy Ponka, who encouraged her to take a variety of classes not in her field of studies. And so textiles was one of those where she learned batiking, weaving, dyeing. She said, I didn't realize that I would need to sew. And luckily, my first assignment was create a garment with no sewing involved. (laughs) (laughs) That would be be my first garment, too, given, (laughs) given like, I have like super basic hand skills, and that's about it. Yeah. And she said that the next assignment she was giving a sewing machine um, and the rest is history or fashion history because she really got into the art of fashion design and creating after that. She says she started draping and flourished and Wendy had them doing fashion shows around Santa Fe and eventually traveling out of state. And at the time, I didn't realize that I was part of a quote-unquote native fashion movement. Wendy, along with Marcus Ammerman, Patricia Michaels, Terrence Otis, myself, and others who did traditional clothing, Native Influx was the name we did our shows under. So, um, so, so cool to see your work, Pilar. And thank you for providing this little snippet of information behind your wonderful dress. Yes, and also taking us to a fabulous restaurant that afternoon. Oh, yes, we did have lunch with her that day. (laughs) So really, so many of the designers on view in the exhibition were also on the fashion runway. So there was actually not one, but two fashion shows in um, this Swaya's centennial celebration. So Jamie Akuma, Patricia Michaels were on view. So was our, you know, one of our favorite past guests, Karina Emmerich. And of course, we've done an FHN with curator Amber Dawn Bear Robe, who was not only the curator behind the fashion exhibition, but also the mastermind behind this annual fashion show that accompanies the market. So there were actually two fashion shows. One occurred on Saturday night, which we did not attend that particular one. Um, so we did miss some of the designers that presented that weekend, but we were very lucky enough to sit front and center at Sunday's festivities. So thank you to Audrey and her team for the fantastic press access. And I think we're going to kind of chat more in detail about that particular presentation. Yes, Cass? Yeah. So we had really excellent seats. Audrey sat us right at the front of the runway. So we, you know, we really were there front and center to see the work by Orlando Dugay, Catherine Blackburn, and Melanie LeBlanc did a collaboration. Shosho Escaro, Lauren Goodday, Patricia Michaels, Jamie Akuma, and Skawanati are the designers that we saw. And so like the designers, there was also a bunch of Indigenous models from across North America. This included many celebrities, some of my favorite fashion models like Quana Chase, Horse, Amber Midthunder from New Mexico, who's the star of Hulu's hit Prey film. Um, and so we just thought we would highlight a few of our favorite pieces on the runway, perhaps starting with, I think, both of ours, like one of our favorite collections, which was by jeweler and artist Catherine Blackburn, whose stunning beadwork pieces were presented in collaborations with fashion designs by her niece, Melanie LeBlanc. Yes, and I think that's where I would like to start, if I may. I'm just going to say, dear Catherine Blackburn, we adore your work. And as Cass noted, um, she's going to come and join us on an upcoming episode. So I'm not going to go too much in detail here about her background. You can stay tuned for that. But one of my very favorite pieces from the runway show was for sure her Masai Cho bag, translating to thank you very much. 
Masecho. This was a sequined and embellished bag that is a cheeky twist on that ubiquitous takeout bag that are printed with like the words, thank you, thank you, thank you on the front. Um, However, this was a very luxe twist on that bag. (laughs) (laughs) And it has a very different silhouette. So uh, Catherine's bag is supported by kind of like a straight handlebar across the top. So that forces the bag itself to take a little bit of like a um, elongated square form. And the ground of the bag is cream. But even though we were sitting so close to the runway, I couldn't quite make out what material was used for the ground of the bag. Was it pieces of shell, perhaps? Or was it a sort of shiny ribbed textile? I'm not really sure. I've even reviewed my photos and I still can't tell. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll get to the bottom of this when, when you chat with Catherine on an upcoming episode. But down the center of the bag is the phrase Masacho replicated five times, outlined in red sequins. And then the whole bag is finished with these long metallic purple rectangular beaded fringe elements. And it's trimmed with a red fur pom-pom. I mean, this was one of the most delightfully fun pieces to come down the runway. It put a smile on my face. I really, really liked it a lot. Yeah, and then hands down, one of the most stunning pieces. That collection, the entire collection was just ridiculous because, I mean, Catherine really is an artist in so many ways. And her beadwork um, that accompanied her niece's, you know, really beautiful bright blue pieces that was paired with kind of all these fun plaids and like they were just so complimentary. So one of my favorite pieces to come down the runway was this incredible like antler structure. I guess it was hybrid caribou elk moose antlers. Um, And it actually cradled the beaded portrait of Catherine's grandmother and Melanie's great-grandmother. And it was just this incredible, I mean, she's walking down, the model's walking down the runway and her face is masked. And she just has this incredible structure on the top of her head. And I guess that Catherine writes about on her Instagram how she worked with the artist Emily Jan to create this incredible structure that was made using wire, thermoplastic, gold leaf, and other components. I'm so grateful for Catherine because after the runway, she had all her models out in the lobby so you could really get up close and see her work and the incredible amount of craftsmanship that went into each and every one of these pieces. And she just writes about how this collection was inspired by the matriarchal strength, love, and knowledge of our grandmothers. It utilized the land, bone, animal hides, feathers, and hair through tufting by including portraits and names of family and animal. Can we speak to reciprocity and the power of indigenous knowledge? So as April mentioned, Catherine has actually agreed to come on the podcast. So she'll be on in the next couple months. So stay tuned and we're going to talk more to her about the incredible inspirations um, and artistry of her work. Yeah. I can't wait. So we, we mentioned the jingle dress, and I and I promise a tad more on the history of that. One of my other favorite pieces from the runway exhibition was Shosho Esquero's take on a jingle dress. It caught my attention for sure. Again, it's another dress and jacket wrap combo. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> this is the third time now, but um, Shosho's look is. Stunningly graphic. Um, it features a striped bodice to the dress where the black and white striped textiles have kind of been pieced to alternate in different directions at certain points. That creates this really interesting graphic effect. Uh, the lower portion of the dress is all black, and that really makes the copper cones attached to the V pad, like which are attached to the dress in a sort of V shape. 
pop. And there are also copper cones which adorn the lower portion of the bodice of the dress. Um, this whole thing is topped with a cropped jacket with an ochre suede front. It has cream sleeves and there's little bits of, of black leather trim all over the cropped jacket and also the dress itself. So these copper cones are kind of what makes this a jingle dress. And we have received more than one request from listeners over the years for an episode on the history of the jingle dress. So maybe we will do a longer episode on that in in the future. Um, But just for a brief summary here, the jingle dress is thought to have originated about 100 years ago, um, perhaps during the outbreak of the influenza epidemic of 1917-1918, when Ojibwe, medicine man's granddaughter, fell sick. And apparently he dreamed of four women dancing in dresses lined with metal cones. And these spirit guides indicated to him that making a similar dress and then performing the dance would heal his granddaughter. So the dress was made with metal cones formed from rolling up snuff can lids. And then with some physical assistance, his granddaughter, who was still quite sick, danced wearing the dress, performed the dress, and gradually regained her strength. And the story is that the dress then spread from Ojibwe to Lakota peoples and beyond, and now is often performed at powwows. And as the National Congress of American Indians has noted, dress and dance spread from the tribes from coast to coast, and it's grown to represent both healing and pride, a spiritual form of wellness and celebration that links us to our past and helps us move forward with strength and hope. Um, And just a little bit about this ensemble's designer, Shosho Esquero, uh, was raised in Yukon, northern Canada, and her work incorporates, quote, natural fibers, new and repurposed fur and leather, while incorporating 24-karat gold, platinum, porcupine quills, glass beads, embroidery, and dentillium shells, and emphasizes the traditional skills and techniques learned from her Yukon elders. So her use of those precious metals goes hand in hand with her use of copper for this particular take on a jingle dress. Yeah, that was hands down one of my favorites as well. And her whole collection, I really enjoyed. As did I enjoy the collection of, again, Jamie Akuma. So I referenced her earlier in this episode. Jamie is really famous for doing um, all this intricate hand beadwork, but she also produces a ready-to-wear line of clothing that often includes printed motifs of her beadwork designs. So making her work a lot more accessible and affordable to kind of the average everyday person because her beadwork is obviously incredibly, um, time intensive. And then she just, it's really cool because she had a lot of these printed pieces, but she also does these really, really beautiful evening wear designs. She has these piecework ribbon dresses. So there was this, I've only ever seen her colorful piecework ribbon dresses, but she had this black and white ribbon dress that was really, really stunning. And then she had this kind of show-stopping nude organza number that had these broad shoulders, um, kind of a fitted waist, and then a beautiful flaring skirt. And it had this beautiful, beautiful silver braiding motif um, on it. And so that was definitely one of my favorite shows and favorite pieces as well. As was mine, one of Jamie Akuma's. Um, This was not um, some of her evening wear. Definitely, this is definitely more like a daytime look. But she delivers here once again with one of her famous textile prints used for a one-shouldered dress. And this uh, textile print is quite intriguing um, because from afar, it almost looks like a black and white gingham, which is, of course, gingham is a textile motif or, or weave 
Um, sometimes also that is very much associated with Americana. However, upon closer inspection of Akuma's print, um, what kind of looks like gingham from far away is more of a black and white lattice. Perhaps this is referencing basket weaving techniques. And interspersed throughout the pattern are subtle gray animal bone motifs, which also depict deer skulls and antlers. And the dress features one long flowing sleeve, which is trimmed in a pale pink, kind of like natural colored fringe. And again, in terms of materials, I was trying to figure out what the fringe was made from. Um, I was furiously snapping photos of it when it came down the runway. And it's still unclear to me whether the fringe is made from a fabric or a woven type of material, or possibly is this a pale pink or a natural suede that is making up the fringe, um, which probably with the animal motifs would make a little bit more sense here. So like Cass has said, we've talked about Jamie on the show more than once before in the context of her beadwork, which has actually been shown around the world, um, including at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And of course, Jamie is Lusano, Shoshone Bannock, Wailaki, and Okinawan, and as well as an enrolled member of Luhala Band of Indians in Southern California, where she lives and works. So one of my other favorite pieces from the show came from Patricia Michaels, who is a staple, um, longtime favorite of the Swire runway each year, and arguably one of the most famous designers on the runway. And as April mentioned earlier in the exhibition, Patricia was very close to winning Project Runway. And as my friend Pilar mentioned in her exchange with me, Patricia is one of those groundbreaking designers that trained at IAIA. And she really is well known for her creative and innovative approach to textile design that she brings to almost all of her pieces. And as her bio tells us, her work is inspired by nature and her native roots of Taos Pueblo. And her designs are often very fluid, moving with the wearer's body. And that was the case with one of my favorite pieces on the runway, which this was this beautiful two-piece, like hand-painted halter blouse and pant ensemble. The top of this kind of wide-flowing blouse was dyed black, and then the black kind of bled into the silk and disappeared. And then it was paired with this, you know, the most delicate sheer blue hand-painted chiffon pants. So just absolutely lovely. And then certainly one of the most vibrant and colorful collections on the runway came from Lauren Goodday, an Arikara Hadatsa Blackfeet Plains Cree designer. So like Jamie... Lauren has a lot of beautiful prints of her beadwork, and she learned how to bead starting at the age of six. Um, and she also learned quill work and ledger art at a very young age from her mother and grandmother. And historically, ledger art was a means by which Plains Indian people preserved their oral histories pictorially, and that was done on buffalo hides, cloth, and then beginning in the 19th century, ledger books. So just a stunning, beautiful collection, very vibrant, and paired with the most beautiful hand-beaded footwear on the runway. Welcome back, dress listeners. So Scott Winati is the final designer we're going to talk about today from the runway shows. And she's very much an artist working within the medium of dress and fashion. And as her bio tells us, she, quote, addresses history, the future, and change from her perspective as an urban Mohawk woman and as a cyberpunk avatar. she's uh, Her work is so cool. She really enjoys working in the virtual realm, and she creates avatars and educational historical experiences. So if you go to her website, which we'll link to, there's this time-traveling paper doll, part of this Imagining Indians in the 25th Century Project. 
And it's kind of like this paper doll-like guide through one millennium of First Nations history, where each period you can find an amazing outfit accompanied by a journal of her visit and then a mirror that will show her completely dressed. So that's really fun and playful. So these avatars she creates and dresses make real-world appearances, as is the case with this most recent Swaya fashion show where, quote, cyberpunk activist avatars hit the runway. The avatars are part of her calico and camouflage assemble project, which is a virtual and physical art installation that, from what I can tell, first debuted at the Scotia Bank Contact Photography Festival in 2020. And the accompanying text for that project tells us about these avatars and how they explore the intersections of personal fashion and protest and quote-unquote resistance wear that's all designed by Scott Anati and based on two types of clothing that the artist associates with Indigenous people, and that's the ribbon shirt and camouflage. And as the website tells us, ribbon shirts are wildly recognized as part of Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and other Indigenous nations' regalia and are traditionally made with calico pattern fabric. They assert Indigenous pride and their continued existence in the face of attempted assimilation. And then combat pants and other military garb, which are often employing camouflage patterning, are worn by Indigenous people around the world to demonstrations, protests, and other sites of resistance. And in Skawanati's collection, an updated camo pattern has migrated to the ribbon shirts, while two bold new calicos adorn the army fatigues, bringing the elements into a dialogue that references the history of contact and trade with Europeans, past and present acts of colonization and military aggression, and then cultural revitalization. So these particular avatars rocked the runway, holding signs that advocated slogans like Water is Life, Black Lives Matter, and No More Stolen Sisters. So just really a, a beautiful and powerful runway show by Skawanati. And then again, someone who was featured in the Art of Indigenous Fashion exhibition. Actually, a lot of these designers, if not all of them, are featured in that exhibition, if I'm not mistaken. So cool dress listeners. I mean, there was just so much to see. April and I had a really great time checking it all out. Of course, there's so much we missed, including that Saturday night fashion gala, um, which we, of course, did not cover here. And we will, of course, provide links in the show notes if you want to learn more about the designers we've discussed today. We hope you enjoyed our little preview, including what is about to come next. Yes. So um, our last designer that we would like to talk about today um, is actually going to join us for a brief moment. We are going to speak with uh, fashion designer Jante Kam, who is actually still a student at the IAIA. And Jante was kind enough to chat with us very briefly while we were there. We kind of invited him to come on the show. And uh, what's coming next is a little conversation between the two of us. Enjoy. Jante, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. So Cass and I happened to meet you when you were having a very good day, a dream come true day. And we wanted to share it with our listeners like you shared it with us. And we had actually gone to see the Art of Indigenous Fashion Exhibition, which had just opened at the Institute of American Indian Arts Museum. And as we were walking in, we bumped into Christian Allaire, who is, of course, a Vogue contributor. And he's also been on the podcast in the past. And he was leaving as we were walking up. And he mentioned to us not to miss your pop-up shop in the lobby of the museum. I'm so glad you guys stopped by because... How it all started was uh, Alyssa Wheeler from the bookstore asked me to do a pop-up show. And I was like, okay, sure. Let me let me see what I can put together uh, last minute this summer. 
It's my understanding that after studying fashion design in Canada and at Marist College on the East Coast for several years, you are now back at IAIA for your senior year, where you were enrolled in the studio arts program at the Institute, which is, of course, not fashion design exactly, but I do want to talk to you about that, about how potentially working under that umbrella of what is typically considered fine art, how does that parlay into your work as a fashion designer in the program? I think it's such a great fit for me because it's such a different perspective uh, other than fashion. I'm getting a different lens from the sculptor teachers, uh, the painting teachers, the photography instructors and all of that. I, th- I think it'll make my work even stronger, more artsy, I guess, not, but not crafty. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you brought up handcraft. Um, your work is incredibly sculptural, and we were very impressed with the craftsmanship in your pieces. So what role does handcraft play in your work as opposed to the role of technology? I don't uh, mess around too much with uh, the software or with artificial intelligence, really, or uh, the 3D rendering. Mm -hmm. But why I do so much uh, textural work is because of my grandfather, who who was blind when when I was growing up. You know, I I would paint, I would draw and all that stuff. But I really couldn't explain to him what the piece is or what it looks like. So I started making different things with more textural aspects so he can feel it. And so that that has always stuck with me. And the reason why I think I do sculptural stuff was because of uh, uh, McQueen's Plato's Atlantis show. That's when I was first introduced with the world of fashion. It was uh, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance Mm -hmm. uh, in 2009. That was such a, a pinnacle shift in my for my future because I did not know that world existed and I knew I wanted to be an artist. So listening to that song, seeing the music video for Bad Romance and seeing Alexander McQueen's work in that music video opened the door to other fashion designers in that world. And lo and behold, I just wanted to create those pieces so much. Even today, I still don't know how those pieces were made in the Plato's Atlantis show. So it opened the door to Iris Van Herpen and then ready to wear stuff like for Anthony Vaccarello and what they do at St. Laurent and Jean-Paul Gaultier, everything. everything. And and watching um, fashion television with Jeannie Becker was such a helpful uh, tool for me to use before going into the fashion school system. And because it's like, she was my first teacher really. The morning we met you, some of the creative icons that had really influenced you to become a designer came calling. Can you tell us what happened? Because I think this is such an extraordinary story. So Saturday uh, afternoon, after I had a nap, after that long day, I get an inbox on my Instagram saying, hey, I'm in Santa Fe. I would love to see your work. And then I see a blue check mark. And then that was ultimately Nicola Formichetti. And I was like, oh my, oh my goodness, that that's Nicola is like texting me. Like, well, <laughs> I was just so uh, floored. I was so excited because I was, I was finally going to get to meet him. Uh, so Nicola is Lady Gaga's uh, stylist. And I knew him when he first started to design uh, at, at Terry Mugler. And I was such a fan of his work and meeting him on Sunday morning, August 21st at 10 a.m. sharp. 
he walks in the door and then i'm so like breathtaking because like i know his work i love his work you know it was kind of full circle for you because it was mcqueen and gaga that kind of opened the door to this world for you and then all of a sudden one of those stakeholders in that world is asking to see your work this is the stuff of dreams come true and i love it so much i love it too One of the pieces that we saw in your pop-up shop is actually on reserve for Gaga currently. Would you tell us a little bit about that piece? So when when Nicola walked in, he came across this bluebird dress uh, made out of 2,000 goose feathers. And he was like, oh, yeah, we would love to borrow that for Gaga. And like inside, I'm just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Take it now. But, you know, she's on tour right now. So uh, when the time comes, it'll be ready for her. The silhouette is a mini skirt and it is off the shoulder. The The open arm shoulder is open and it has like a very flouncy feathers. Like her arm is breaking out of the feathers. Uh, they're all attached to this very uh, structural fabric. It's like a felt and then uh, he bonded it to an, the same matching color of blue. And yeah, I just I just went in for it. I did not know what it was going to really look like in the end, but making the, sil- the, the base and then the silhouette and then the pattern of the feathers, how it was going to lay on the dress. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because now that I understand that you don't work in 3D rendering at all, really, you're working right in front of you with the piece and you're crafting the silhouette as you go along. And this particular ensemble actually has a headpiece or a head covering as well, right? It was covered with a morph suit, a blue morph suit, a bodysuit, uh, to give that engulfment feeling of being submerged in in, in these feathers. And then uh, the face was covered in uh, sapphire brooches uh, that were just basically just found objects. Yeah, it is really great. And it's so gaga for sure. We were definitely not the only press who took notice of your work that weekend. You also received coverage in Women's Wear Daily the following week, which is a huge deal. Congratulations. Yeah, so, so much fun. I'm curious, what was your initial reaction to the Women's Wear Daily article? And um, what does that mean to you as a designer who's just about to enter the industry? Well, it gives finally, after more than 10 years, that my work is finally being recognized. But not only that my family loves it, that I hear all the time, but like other people in this serious industry has finally taken notice. And that really gives me the encouragement to keep moving and that I'm doing what I need to do. Like If I was in like another field in whatever industry, it would not work out but I was putting my heart and soul into these pieces. And then it just makes room for you. Really, your dream makes room for you. So that's that's how I know I'm going into the right path. Yeah, for sure. And we cannot wait to see what's next. What do you think is on the horizon for you? You know, obviously your senior collection first and foremost. So maybe you would tell us a little bit about that and then also what you envision after graduation. Well, people loved the feather dresses so much. So I'm, I'm going to make more for my collection and 
a few wearable pieces as well. Uh, and so my my capsule collection has this theme of uh, the concept. I'll read you the concept. When the body is adorned with traditional regalia, a transformation takes place where the current physicality is enhanced with uh, a spirit, the spirit of regalian bodies. So when you put on regalia, it transforms you uh, mentally and physically. You act different, you dance different in, in, in these clothes. So I wanted to take that concept and make it fashion. So I, I am plain screen. Uh, I grew up around powwows here and there. And I want to make clothes that are fun and exciting or, or just like ecstasy to the eyes when you look at these pieces. Well, you are very successful in that. The whole pop-up was arresting. And we were just like, even if Christian hadn't stopped us outside and said, don't miss Jante's work, you know, the first thing uh, as I walked in, I saw was one of your tonal fringed pieces that you were doing. So we would have stopped anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and Cassidy leaned over to me when she saw it too, and she whispered in my ear, she's like, that is an April dress. But uh, it's actually not a dress at all, as you showed me. It's Rather, it's a vest that is covered entirely in very long fringes that form a dress-like silhouette. And you had a couple of those fringe pieces. They're really, really lovely. Yeah, so that's like my interpretation of uh, a ribbon skirt, like a Jante Com version, I guess you could say. Jante, thank you so much for joining us today. We loved hearing a little bit more about your work, and we know for certain that this is not the last time that we're going to be hearing from you. So we wish you the best of luck in all of your endeavors, your final year of school and your graduation collection, and we cannot wait to see your name in the press in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, April. Thank you for inviting me. This, is, this has been fun. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the art of Indigenous fashion next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with questions or listener suggestions, you can do so via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you with more Dressed on Tuesday. Dressed, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.